Our guest today is Professor Azar Ghat. Azar Ghat is a professor at the School of Political Science and International Relations at Tel Aviv University, and he holds the Ezra Weitzman Chair in National Security. Dr. Ghat, a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. A lot of young men have a fascination with war and with the history of war, maybe even an obsession. Uh, I imagine that for some it's, it's a fleeting thing or a lifelong hobby. For you, it became a career. Yeah, and it's not a young man. It's actually a young, uh, young child. I uh, developed this interest in a very early age, say uh, from the moment I learned how to read. Must have been, you know, must have been uh, so uh, connected with the fact that I'm Israeli. So I was uh, eight during the Six Day War. Oh, wow. And ever since I, you know, read avidly as a child about war. And then, as you say, I made a career of it. Were you reading mainly as a child in Israeli wars? Yeah. And Israeli wars, yes, but also, you know, general, uh, the general history of war. Mm-hmm. Is, there a, is there an era in sp- or is there a particular era or a particular uh, conflict that you find fascinating? Uh, it's always, I, I was always interested in wars uh, phenomenon, so it, uh, in time it developed into in, uh, theoretical interest in the subject of war and its theory, so my interest is global. Mm-hmm. You wrote a book about the, that spanned a huge amount of time, like the, the entire evolution of war from, um, what, pre-human through to the modern age. Right. There, were, there must have been a lot of um, academic disputes along the way that you had to navigate and sort of choose yourself which side to lean into. Was that a difficult process for you? It was a very enjoyable process. <laughs> uh, you, you might want to mention that the first part of the book, the book is called Growing Human Civilization. It has 800 pages. And the first part is called, out of three, is called The First Two Million Years. <laughs> up to the adopt to the transition to agriculture and the, the rise of states, right. And so in that in that time, you um, talk about uh, what pre agricultural hunter gatherer societies and That's the right. raids that they That's had on right. each other. That's right. And as you say, there have been uh, the, the, you know, numerous numbers of uh, of scholarly uh, disputes along the way. And, uh, you know, like Putin, I like to invade uh, <laughs> alien uh, disciplines and, uh, you know, conquer some ground there. <laughs> Do you find that sometimes there's a big argument with a lot of points and then you look at it and you're like, yeah, but really the knockdown argument is just this one very simple thing? Often. So with... Um, with uh, let's say the the disagreement among scholars as to whether pre-agricultural society was largely peaceful or largely violent. Was there something that you looked at and went, "Well, this is clearly the smoking gun"? So Australia is the smoking gun. I don't know if you are aware of this. Uh, you know, the, the the dispute has been going on for centuries. Mm. You know, the peaceful uh, view of uh, the human of prehistory was. Uh, was uh, formulated by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, mm-hmm. whereas the warlike uh, version had been uh, a century earlier had been suggested by Thomas Hobbes, mm-hmm. 
and uh, anthropologists have not been able to decide who was right for various uh, reasons that I can explain. Well, this is the Leviathan versus Noble Savage view of exactly. history. Exactly. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so, but in the past uh, few decades, it has become clear that I've contributed to the process. When I approach the question, it seems to be that, you know, Rousseau might have been right. But once I delved into the empirical data, it became obviously clear that he was uh, totally wrong. And as I said, uh, Australia is the ideal laboratory because the uh, European arrived there, you know, only just uh, 200, 250 years in 1788, if I remember correctly. And until then, Australia was inhabited only by Aborigines uh, who, had, who had no agriculture, no, no herds, so they were not pastoralists either, and no states. So this was a, a whole continent inhabited by about 300 uh, tribes of hunter-gatherers. And uh, moreover, they inhabited the entire, you know, various, very different ecological niches from the temperate south to the, uh, to the subtropical north, to the, you know, to the prohibiting, prohibiting uh, the deserts of uh, central Australia. And in all of these niches, uh, we know very clearly that they fought viciously with very high levels of mortality. Um, so, you know, they carried, they carried with them uh, shields to wherever they went. Now, you know, we can debate whether this, the spears or the boomerangs were used only on kangaroos, uh, but the shield, you know, <laughs> was of no use against kangaroos. Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So there were massacres uh, throughout the continent. Because, uh, you know, the nitrate was the main method of fighting. And they, they, would, uh, they would kill whoever they uh, could in such a nitrate. Uh, so it was very vicious. Uh, yeah, if you want to, you know, just briefly mention why they fought, I can go into this. I do want to come back to that, to the why they fought. But I want to just um, talk about this, the, the nitrate specifically. Something I, I got from your research was that there seem to be two very distinct forms of combat between pre-agricultural societies. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the sort of, the kiddie version is they line up just outside spear range, they yell and shout and shake yeah. and maybe throw a few spears and probably no one gets hurt and one person gets hurt, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't usually escalate. Sometimes right. it escalates, but usually not. Yeah. And then sometimes when the gloves are off, you wait till everyone's asleep, you show up and just slit their throats while they're exactly. sleeping. So we usually associate war with the battle. Now, the battle was present in Australia, as in all other you know, prehistoric societies, but it was less lethal than other forms of warfare, again, universal, that is the ambush and the nitrate. And the nitrate was, was the most lethal uh, form of fighting in Australia as elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's something that I think was very clear from... Uh, from reading the writing on it and just makes a lot of sense because that's when you're in close quarters with the enemy exactly. There's no performance. It's just Effectiveness what what um, you, you said we can talk about the reasons for fighting 
I, I'm really interested with um, the reasons for fighting, especially um, given the contrast between, what is it, structural realists and human nature realists within the international relations sphere. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into this because I think, I think international relations theory with respect to the causes of war is ridiculous. Oh, good. All right. So I, I'm not. We are not going to, to you know to waste our waste our time, uh, you know, discussing this. Sure. You know, they are all very self-important, but otherwise ridiculous. And I hope that with the, in time, you know, we look at it, uh, the whole debates uh, with a smile. But now, if you if you if you want to get to the uh, you know, so so the basic of uh, there are two main reasons for. Um, for a violent uh, struggle in, uh, with human as in nature. And one of them is a struggle over vital resources. So in this, the central Australian desert, it was above all water. So there was uh, especially a time of drought, but then you want to monopolize them before the drought. So there was a, a vicious circle over the water holes in the central Australian desert. In other pla- in, uh, throughout Australia, the, and, and including also the Central Australian Desert, there is competition over, over hunting territories. Because in contrast to the Rousseau and M image, the nature is not uh, endlessly abundant. And hunting territory are, uh, territories are rapidly depleted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess your generation... Uh, all grew on the Lion King, <laughs> so you remember the enmity between the lions and the hyenas. Sure. So, the, what is the reason for this? Uh, you know, eternal enmity. That is, it. It. It is the struggle over the hunting resources in the territory, and the same with other animals. So, for example, lions will chase out uh, leopards and whatever competitor, and obviously. Um, uh, foreign uh, alien uh, lions, mm-hmm. and, and this this goes across nature, especially among meat eaters, because with grass, grass eaters, the uh, nutritious value of grass is too low uh, for it to be monopolized. But with meat, very concentrated mm-hmm. uh, nutritious uh, value. Uh, you have this uh, very intense competition. The same applies to human. Now, since this is vital, the alternative is to starve. You want to risk your life. You, you will risk lo- your life, all right? So this is one reason, cause of fighting. The other cause of uh, fighting, believe it or not, is male competition of uh, female, females. Uh, and you see it again across nature, even among herbivores, not only meat eaters. And they, uh, they will kill. Why is it so important? Because reproduction is, uh, you know, is evolutionary, is the, the, the engine of evolution. And therefore the desire for mating is so strong. Uh, and again, we see it across nature, that is males fight viciously. Within the group, if they are, you know, if they are the group uh, animals and, and uh, outside of the group. Across groups. Across groups. So <laughs> the same with, so homicide within the group and, and, you know, all sorts of struggles, you know, short of homicide. 
and uh, raids on other tribes in order to kill the men and take the women, uh, you know, uh, the, you find it across the board. In Australia, as in all other societies, prehistoric societies and later. Right. I, I, something that comes up here for me is uh, I'm, I'm sort of trying to map early human conflict with other non-human animals. So one of the things you said about um, uh, contrary to popular belief, hunting territory gets depleted very quickly. Yeah. Before you mentioned the Lion King, I was thinking about it in terms of like boom and bust cycles. That yeah. you know, prey prey species yes. decline rapidly, then the predator species declines, then yeah. the prey species. Yeah, we see this, but you know, the predator's <laughs> population does not want to decline, right. <laughs> so it, it will fight. It will fight it before declining. Right, and then the other thing that came up was this idea that um, you have two very different sexual strategies employed by, let's say. Uh, I don't know, higher, higher mammals, but all, all sorts of animals, which roughly breaks down into um, uh, sexual display for assortative mating and, and direct sexual competition. So amongst lions, say, and gorillas, there's one guy who's the leader, generally because of, of, of combat or some combination of combat and diplomacy with chimpanzees, for instance, and then he has all sexual access because he's the strongest. But then in a lot of species there's uh, a display and the, and the females will choose mates. And it's, it seems like when you talk about um, wars fought for sexual access, that there are both components. It's not either or. Mm. You have display and you have uh, direct competition. And obviously you have, uh, you know, there is a variety among uh, animal species as to, you know, how monogamous or how polygamous they might be. So, for as you say, for gorillas, they are highly polygamous. They're the one, the, the male that wins. Uh, with others, it's more evenly distributed. So, mm -hmm. among we, uh, uh, humans, it's more equally distributed, and still there is a difference. Uh, first of all, there is a difference with respect to the quality of the female uh, partners. That is, you want those that with the greatest uh, reproductive potential in, in our terms uh, young and beautiful all right and you want uh, and you want as many of them because you know most uh, societies in history have been uh, polygamous only for the only for the most successful uh, males uh, so so competition is intense uh, you know it's not we do not have the same uh, polygamous structure as gorillas but it's still very intense. And mm -hmm. obviously with the most successful males in history, these are the, uh, these are the, um, uh, the, the sultans of, uh, you know, the, uh, the monarchs of, of, of the East, so-called, mm -hmm. also in Latin America. So the, the Ottoman or the, the one in uh, the Indians, or Mughals, or, or the, above all, the emperor of China. Mm. All right. So, if you want some numbers, the emperors of China had uh, the Han emperors had. Uh, the, we know because we have the uh, treasury documents. They had to be fed, you know, and, and maintained and kept by the treasury. It's a logistical progress. So we have the records. So we know, for for example, for the Han emperor, that he had uh, two thousand women in his harem and two thousand and two thousand more in the retired list. Retired list. Yes, of course, you know. <laughs> Former star players. 
I, you know, I, the, I think the Ottoman Empire, Empire had uh, Sultan had uh, three hundred in, in, in the active service and uh, three hundred in the on the retirement active service. Yeah, <laughs> call him in from Milo M. Yeah. I well, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Genghis Khan is at once the territorially most successful conqueror in, in history and also genetically the most successful progenitor in history. You know, you know the uh, the, the the numbers. I think it's 10% of Mongolians and 1.5% of the world are like direct male line descendants, uh, something right. like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It, it's not all by him, you know, he wouldn't have been, but, but his uh, descendants, exactly, his descendants ruled, uh, you know, royal houses for centuries over, you know, the vast extents of Asia and, the, and Eastern Europe, so they had this, uh, so his Y chromosome is... Uh, Everywhere, said, yeah. Well, I mean, he, he he's... Uh, he was the progenitor of, of amongst other, of, amongst many other empires, uh, uh, an entire lineage in China, an imperial lineage. So, yes, sure. So, um, I want to I want to um, shift into another issue where you, I think you had a really um, strong uh, lateral move. At a certain point, uh, you wrote a book about uh, nationalism. Okay. Essentially, it addressed it the misapprehension that um, nationalism is like a 19th century invention. That's right. And I really like that when you make that case, you you start by saying, sure, it changed a lot yes. in the 19th century. There were a lot of factors that led to a, an elevation or an escalation or an evolution of the nature of nationalism yes. and the predominance of it. Um, but it was obviously also a much older phenomenon. Yes, and I, I want to make clear that it's not it's not a question of semantics. If you want to call what, what went before the 19th century, if you want to call it something else, ethnic affinity or whatever, it's fine by me. Proto-nationalism. Proto-nationalism. That's fine. Sure. I'm, I'm not arguing about semantics, about mm. the meaning of the concept. What I'm arguing about is historical realities, because the view among the so-called modernists in the study of nationalism is that people did not have a sense of common peoplehood before before the 19th century, of some, some uh, you know, have it uh, a bit earlier, that they did not have the sense of belonging to a shared people, let alone the solidarity and the sense of uh, affinity that went with it. Uh, so this is the the historical uh, claim that I am disputing, not not the semantics. All right. Mm -hmm. So the question is, the modernists do not only uh, reject the view that nationalism did not exist. What they actually reject is the view that peoples uh, existed before the 19th century. In their view, you know, most of, let me explain so that it makes some sense. In their view, most of the, you know, we know that 90% of the population were farmers and peasants. So in their, and they never left their village. So in their view, they did not have any, any sense of common identity beyond their village or at most the province. Mm -hmm. Whereas the elite had horizontal connections with the elites in other countries, and in any case, the elite did not view uh, the peasants as belonging to the... So what we have is a much more fragmented uh, mm -hmm. sense of identity. Now, obviously, this is true as far as it goes, but it, 
it by no means go as far as they imagine. And we have s several indications to show that this is so. Wild. So uh, just the way you're putting it, um, spelling it out instantly gives me some sense of um, motivation, perhaps, for this view, which is one of the big, um, I don't know, the big attempted reframing or attempted framing, you know, it's not fair to call it reframing, no need for status quo bias, but one of the, one of the big framings of, of Marxist theory is that, you know, you think national, nationalism matters, you think religious identity matters, you think whatever else, no, it's actually all a class game and it always has been. And the people in the upper class, they get it, and all these other identities are just like a series of um, scarves that they're covering your eyes with. So if you were to project that view backwards, you'd say, well, it's always been the case that you know, no one had ethnicities. And you can see that because we just made them up in the 19th century. Is that, is that some of what's going on here? What is? <laughs> what, what is it that I ask, you're asking about? Uh, is, well, the, the, the popularity so, of, so, the, of so, the... So obviously all of these categories matter. Mm. Class identity, in, class interests matter. Sure. And national or ethno-national identities matter, and they often cross. And we know it not, you know. They, the Marxists have been disappointed, well disappointed. I'm sorry. When uh, World War One broke out, socialists everywhere voted for the war. Uh, you know, before the war, it was believed, you know, that socialists should recognize the the true interests of the workers. And, uh, and not at least in the capitalist uh, struggle for power that might lead to war. And when the, during the July uh, crisis in 1914, the, the Third International collapsed. Each of the, you know, each of the socialist parties, uh, the German Socialist Party, the French Socialist Party, all voted for the war. Uh, they had, had no other options because uh, yeah, even if they thought otherwise, and it's not clear that they did, most of them did not, because their constituencies were you know, full of patriotic fervor. Mm. And by the way, during World War II, you know, when the Soviet Union uh, needed uh, to mobilize its people against the invasion, it was not socialism that they, uh, you know, that they uh, trumpeted, but rather the uh, the defense of Mother Russia. Sure. Right. Uh, which, which you know, was exactly was exactly that they knew very well what spoke to the to the guts of the people, if you we can, you know, put it that, this way. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So. When you were looking at this view that um, the nation's been you and you thought, no, that's, that's, uh, that's not right. I'm going to invade another discipline. Yeah. Um, was there something specific that, um, that leapt out to you as, as wrong with this view? Because I, I'll say from my point of view, I, I remember encountering this view and instantly thinking, no, this has to be wrong. And just sort of thinking, okay, how do I know this is wrong? I'm just straight away, this is wrong. And I think um, I, the, my mind went to this line from Henry V, where he says something like, to the effect of, um, uh, I thought that um, on each pair of English legs, three Frenchmen marched. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's Shakespeare. 
Sure. So, so Shakespeare, you know, lived uh, in, uh, around 1600. And sure. according to some of the modernists, nationalism began then. Uh, no, no. After, okay. the, after the invention of uh, print technology, which made it possible for, for, you know, a common identity and a common discourse. To well, develop at least among the elite, and to be and to be what, um, but if we decided upon and, and pressed downwards as well, yeah. So, but if we go back to the you know hundred years war, if we are you know, uh, so I remind uh, that you know our readers and our in, in this case our listeners that there was this peasant girl, Jeanne d'Arc, which you know came from a small village in Lorraine. Not educated, and still uh, the only we have the uh, we have the records of her, you know, investigation by the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Her trial. Her trial. No, the uh, yeah, true, and then the records of her, you know, at, even before the trial, and the and the trial, of course. So we have them, and we have her in her own voice, and what is clear. Uh, the only thing that she, you know, what is clear is that she knows very well that, uh, you know, the English are foreign invaders of our country, France. And the end of the war must be won. That they leave, all of them leave, except for the dead that will remain uh, buried here in France. So how did, how did she know that she belonged to a terror? And the answer is also, you know, not, not very difficult to find. Because, you know, they, they didn't read, uh, the, the peasantry did not read, because they couldn't read. But they were read too, and they were preached. So Jeanne d'Arc went every Sunday to church, where she heard, say, the, you know, the, the priest talking about the, uh, the uh, v- vicious English uh, invading our the holy France. And violating our holy France. So when people talk, say that, you know, the uh, peasants did not know anything. And uh, because, you know, they didn't read. Uh, they forget that throughout the world, you know, in ancient Egypt, they would visit the, the uh, temples. Where again, uh, the, uh, the uh, clergy... And the monuments of, uh, of the native countries, including royal propaganda, which, was, uh, would, which would project itself not only in written text, but also in images, which were very lively in the minds of people. And as you point out, Egypt is about as old as civilization gets. It, exactly. Right. Egypt is the first national state, moreover. Interesting. Ah, oh, because the the Sumerian states were city states. Exactly. Right. I, I I also really liked your point about how um, even when you had um, city states, like for instance in Greece, you still yeah. had a sense of well, we are Hellenes. Yes. We have a common ethnic identity. Absolutely. The same in Sumer. The same in Akkad. They knew that they belonged to the same uh, ethnic space. Uh, this meant, uh, you know, that this had many practical and emotional implications, but they were also fighting each other. Sure. Well, but it also meant that, you know, when the Persians showed up. Yes, some of them. <laughs> yeah. Some of them, you know, joined the, the Persians. Really? Yeah, sure. Ah, this I didn't know about. Yeah, yeah. Many of them. 
Wild. So, for example, like the city of Tebes, you know, like the, the from Antigona, then they joined the, the Persians. Right. Yeah, because first of all, they thought that there was no choice, so we better join them. Right. And, and do the, make the best out of it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. That I wasn't expecting. I, yeah. I, what I thought is, well, it's time to come together. Let's come together. So yeah. you've thrown a spanner in my uh, in my analysis here. You know, you know, reality is never perfect. <laughs> as much as you insist otherwise. Okay. I want to I want to um, shift again. Let's. Uh, I have a friend who is who was a tank commander in in the IDF here. Yeah. And he. Um, Jesus, already two wars ago. He said um, that when the Ukrainian war originally happened, he was astounded at how Russia would, was deploying her tanks. Yeah. Astounded. And um, he said that he managed to get his hands on a uh, Soviet m- uh, war manual just right. to confirm yeah. that Soviet military doctrine contained, like, some good tank policy, which it did, yeah. and he was astounded that yeah, that the the tank doctrine's there. Just Putin was ignoring it, and just driving his tanks without proper support into death traps, and he was he was just really perplexed by that. Can you speak to that at all? I, I could in general, but you know, it's it's still perplexing. You know, the the low level of uh, first of all motivation and then uh, tactical uh, skills. Uh, you know, the, 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 the presented by the Russian invading forces. Uh, it's, it's you know, in many ways, it's still a mystery. Okay. Well, I I, I appreciate I appreciate that uh, direct answer. Yeah. On, on, while we're on the subject of tanks, though, in, um, in your recent piece um, about the future of, of tanks in uh, and then the land battlefield, you say something that I found really interesting, which is that while we're moving, while right now electronic defenses are an augmentation to heavy armor, we are approaching the time when heavy armor is completely obsolete and that a tank's defenses is entirely run electronically. And I was struck al- by... Al- almost entirely. Almost entirely. Um, as in, there's still, what, there'll still be enough plate armor to, to prevent small small arms fire? Yes. Right, sure. Um, but I was, I was struck... Well, that, that itself is interesting. I was struck by the comparison with the, um, the end of the Middle Ages and the rise of gunpowder and how for so long armor had been going from, from um, leather to scale to plate to... From leather to scale to chain to plate. And finally the gun is invented and pretty quickly people are like, oh, this is armor is a thing of the past. And then after a while, they're like, well, maybe we should still have helmets for a bit of shrapnel and maybe we should still have, um, you know, Kevlar became a thing again. But the idea that um, the shift in, in weaponry just completely obsoletes the idea of just physically protecting your body has been so, seen before. So, th- first of all, this is a huge leap from uh, nationalism, but never mind. <laughs> We'll make the leap. Um, I have a lot to ask you on any limited all right, time. All right. Uh, but, um, but the most telling uh, change, you know, because after the, you know, we still had armor and, and mechanized armor, right? So when, once we had engines, uh, with the invention of, when we had, once we had engines, we could uh, still wear very heavy armor that was effective against projectiles. It's not that the armor was dead. 
infantry armor, cavalry armor was right. dead. But then we had mechanized armor. The invention of the tank. The invention of the tank and also in battleships. Battle right. Yeah. So, so, so armor still played a role and it played a role during the era of mechanization. That mm -hmm. is, once we had the engine uh, from first the steam engine at sea and then the internal combustion en engine at land, uh, on land, uh, we, uh, we had a renewed, we had renewed iron this time in the form of mechanized armor. But, however, then we moved into the third industrial technological revolution. We have, we have had three since the beginning of the industrial age. The first one was associated with the steam engine in the 19th century. The second one is mostly associated with the invention of the internal combustion engine. And the third is electric and robotic? And this third is electric robotics. So the second uh, brought about the aircraft. Mm -hmm. Made possible the aircraft. It made possible the tank and the you know, the, the, the trucks. What was the what was the primary advance of the second one? The internal combustion engine, mm -hmm. piston engine, right? That we so have in cars. Then... So it, it released us from the railway. So it opened sure. the open country to us, uh, cross country included, and it also opened up the air. Mm -hmm. Because steam engine is uh, too clumsy and too heavy to, you know. Put in an airplane. <laughs> exactly. So, so, um, so, so we had this um, mechanized armor coming back. All right. But then with the electronic revolution, what you see is first, armor disappears in sea warfare. Mm -hmm. The dreadnoughts are gone. The heavy... They, they, they are all gone, they give, uh, they are replaced by two main uh, um, war system, a military system, and a weapon system. One is the aircraft, and the other is the submarine. And defense, you know, the, we had the, the giants of World War II, in, for, for example, in the Pacific theaters, they never, you know, they never got into range with one another. So they never fired at each other in anger during World War II. Wow. Because, yeah, because, yeah, because the warfare took place, fighting took place at, in a, at a distance of hundreds of kilometers by aircraft. That's amazing. Yeah. Wait, you said, hang on, this is a, this is a massive, massive thing. In the Pacific theater. Exactly. There was no ship-on-ship -ship combat at all. It was all done by ba their... Ba battleships. No, battleships. Battleships right. are the heavy boxers, you know. They used to... Uh, ships of the line. They were used... Sure. They were considered the, 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 the uh, backbone of any uh, navy. Mm -hmm. So for that... So that What, they come out of the, dr the dreadnoughts of the First World War. That's and right. by the Second World War, they the plane only, essentially only made them obsolete. Only grew bigger. Right, but but you're saying that what is this? This this is the old phrase: you always prepare for the last war. Something like that, yeah. So the big battleships of the of World War Two ended up being massively underperforming because of the advent of the aircraft carrier. In the in the Pacific theater, which was you know the main theater of naval warfare, yeah. they never got into range, uh, never fought each other, mm. never sh uh, you know never you know that's it. Uh, did, did they did they find any function in that? 
like like well, so what, bombardment what, of land. Yeah, but this is this is not. They were not built for this, and <laughs> there was no reason to build them for this. Right. Yeah, so after the war, they indeed were you know disappeared. Sure. We all, all were taken out of service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same process, in a way, you see in air, you saw in air warfare. That is the kinetic uh, capabilities of both aircraft and the cannons gave way to electronically guided uh, missiles um, and disruption. So it's not only between aircraft, but also ground-to-air missiles. The only game in town is who has the upper hand in terms of electronic uh, capabilities. Uh, can we disrupt the missiles or can uh, the, the, do the missiles have the upper hand? Mm. So it all turned it all uh, on the you know over the course of uh, a few decades after 1945, the entire air warfare became a matter of electronics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the replacement happened during the Korean War, like very visibly, like that transition. Beginning, yeah, uh, even more during the Vietnam War, mm. and then during Israel's War. So in the '73 uh, war, when Israel uh, encountered great difficulties in uh, fighting the um, the Sam sites of the Egyptians. Uh, that's right, uh, and the Syrians, and then uh, from from then uh, and to, to the present. Uh, so, so the same revolution has uh, been reaching uh, land warfare. That is, the heavy armor no longer is able to protect against uh, against sophisticated anti-tank missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, this is why we have the uh, stalemate in Ukraine. Not only on the Russian side, but now we see it also on the Ukrainian side. So part of the stalemate is caused by the minefields, but a part of it is due to the fact that even the, the very advanced uh, Western models that the Ukrainian gets, most notably the German uh, Leopard tanks, mm. which are the, among the best in the world, uh, are still not equipped with, uh, with uh, active uh, anti-missile defense, that is, uh, defense that can shoot down incoming missiles. So they find themselves in the same uh, predicament as. I, as, yeah. I noted in the in the piece you referred to it as a, as the sort of bizarre resurrection of trench warfare. Yeah, it ended up in a similar stalemate. Yeah, and, uh, and and something else you said there, which I which really um, I found really interesting, was you were saying the entire generation of current tanks will his, when we view it historically speaking, we'll see them as an intermediate step. So so I believe. Mm. That's really interesting. The, this, this is sort of the. The end of the armor age and the beginning of the electronic defense yeah, age. Yeah, something like that. If you prefer, you know, if you like the uh, the analogy to uh, to the heavy cavalry of uh, early modern periods, they wore armor and, and carried pistols. So, but but then you know the armor would would um, gradually give way. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. I've, I have. Um, in advance of this, I, I actually consulted a few friends for, um, uh, for for questions for this, and I got like a great a great set of um, All right. a great set of questions. So sort of a, a sort of a hot a hot button section. If All you right. Um, this is this is this one's from Professor uh, sorry Dr Jamie Q Roberts, Dr Jamie Q Roberts uh, from the University of Sydney. He's a lecturer in international security. 
Um, and he asked if you agree with uh, Pinker's thesis that war violence is decreasing. So I, um, I expressed this view long before Pinker. <laughs> so, in fact, and, Pinker and, agrees with you. Yeah, and for the right reasons. Uh, Pinker has uh, done uh, you know, a great job, but I think that uh, the reason that he cites are not that. Uh, so, yes, war is declining around the world. It's not something recent. It has been going on since, the big, since 1815. We all know that the 19th century was the most peaceful in, uh, Euro in European history until then. And the same applies to the uh, period uh, from uh, nine after 1945. And the, the big question is why this is so. And there have been various uh, theories advanced, and I think that, uh, that to account for this. And I think that the main reason is none of those uh, cited, but the main reason that is that a fundamental change has been taking place since the beginning of the industrial age. You want me to elaborate on that? Please. So, so until the uh, advent of the industrial age, uh, that is from around 1800 uh, onward, uh, until then, uh, wealth per capita was more or less constant. The tragedy of the times was, uh, you know, perfectly formulated at the very end of this period by Thomas Malthus. Mm -hmm. The Malthusian trap. Uh, the Malthusian trap, yeah. Thomas Malthus was a clergyman and he, you know, he said in, uh, in a book written in, uh, published in uh, 1799, uh, uh, he said that, you know, humanity was uh, trapped in a tragic uh, trap. That is, uh, whenever there was a slow um, advance in productivity, new technological changes, which you know took place even before the industrial age, even before modernity, then what would happen is that there would be a growth in the number of uh, children that survived because there was more food and more women were, would, would conceive with better you know, nutrition. So uh, the numbers would grow and will, would uh, take, up, uh, take up the entire growth in production. So humanity always existed on the verge of starvation, sometimes uh, going uh, under it and sometimes, you know, uh, keeping its head above it. Uh, so the only in, in, when when resources were thus uh, were so final, the only way to increase your uh, share in it was by taking from others. Now, with the industrial revolution, all this logic changed, and the reason is uh, that the industrial production made it possible of, uh, made possible a, an exponential growth in wealth. We are, in the developed parts of the world, we are between 30 and 50 uh, wealthier in per, in per capita terms than, uh, than uh, the people in 1800. Wow. Between 30 and 50. I don't be surprised. You know, look at the poor uh, the parts of the world today, which more or less uh, reflect conditions that uh, when, you know, and you know how, how fortunate you are. So when you look at the graphs of growth in per capita wealth, you see an exponential growth. We are all, you know, 
Now, experts on exponential uh, growth now after uh, Corona. So, so we know we are, <laughs> what we are talking about. So, so now the pie is expanding, has been expanding constantly for over the last uh, 200 years. And it has been expanding by economic investment at all, from which uh in from we uh, from we from which war is a diversion of resources so what we see is that uh, it's not that war has become more costly another thing that uh, people believe it's it has not become more costly not in in, in terms of life and treasure uh, it's peace that has become so much more profitable Do you think that holds indefinitely? I'm not a prophet. <laughs> yeah, we have a, we have here a very deeply grounded historical process. What the what the future would bring, I have no idea. You know, we might hit by a meteorite, and you know, and sure, on, sure, and be all gone. But I suppose that's an engineering question, fundamentally. Huh? That's an engineering question, fundamentally. You are talking about the future. The future has, uh, you know, it's not an engineering uh, question. <laughs> the future has many you know, factors going in to shape it. And, uh, Put that on a bumper sticker. The future is not an engineering question. Yeah. Do you, do you concern yourself much? You, you talk about the, the um, being primarily interested in the, in the zoomed out uh, right. picture of warfare. Yes, yeah, right. Do you, you, do you concern yourself much with tactics and strategy? I do. I do because you know because I like it. So I mean, theoretically, it's not uh, so. So I uh, you know so I uh, I have been an interest in uh, all these uh, questions. Yes. Do you, do you have like um, strong I don't know strong personal opinions which uh, you know maybe don't directly feed into your work, but about like um, ancient tactics, classical tactics. Like, I, I've written about all this in War and Human Civilization. So mm-hmm. it goes from the, you know, the, from the most fundamental question of why people fight, but also into, the, into some of the main features of warfare in various parts of the world in various periods. Mm-hmm. During various periods, yeah. And do, do, you, do, you, do you do the, the thing that um, so many people like to do where they match up different um, armies from different periods of history and think, oh, what would this... What if we got this this army to fight that army? Theoretically, but 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 you know we have uh, we have enough cases, you know that this actually took place. What do you mean? So, for example, the the Mongols from the east arriving in the west, mm-hmm. the Ottomans uh, fighting Europeans, the European fighting uh, in uh, in uh, you know in uh, in the Americas. Oh, sure. That's a very so, good example. So this, this is an example of uh, two worlds that were practically separated. So they are, they are this kind of a science fiction scenario. When two worlds join mm-hmm. and two very uh, different technologies and cultures and, 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 and military forces collide, what happens? So we have enough... I'm not into, into science fiction. Mm-hmm. To me, history provides uh, you know such a rich uh, diversity, which which for me is uh, more than enough. So we have we have uh, specific cases in history when when you can do the the magic. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. from very, very you know, the, the, the Romans never fought the Chinese. But all kind of uh, intermediate case, cases we can find. What if the Romans had fought the Chinese? Depends on when and where. You know. China is uh, is, a, is a is a cosmos. It's not China. The size of China dwarf, dwarfs everything else. Rome uh, at its peak. But, but uh, pardon me. Rome at its peak. Rome at its peak. Yeah. Really, so, the entire Mediterranean. So yeah. So this would be the closest analogy. Okay. All right. Uh, and obviously, we know that China was repeatedly taken over. Sure. Repeatedly, mostly by nomads from the steppe. From the north, yeah. Uh, also by the Manchurians that, uh, you know, were, you know, half nomads, not, not really nomads, but mm. still overtook uh, China. Uh, yeah, so we have, you know. Well, I mean, also one of the questions is, are you going to run it as a, uh, what, as a strategic question or as a tactical question? Because I think as a strategic question, you sort of already know from... Rome's repeated failure to conquer Persia, that there's yeah. a limit to how far supply chains can go. Supply chains, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the effectiveness of what be- was basically an infantry army in the open country and the semi-arid uh, uh, plains of the east, you know, it, the, the question, I, I remind you that, uh, you know, Alexander did conquer Persia and went all the way uh, through what we now know as Afghanistan, all the way to India. All right, so he, he did manage this. That's a good point. Yeah, partly because uh, partly because his cavalry was first rate, which mm. uh, the Roman leg. But you know, there were, obviously there are many you know, factors going into this. Interesting. Um, do you do you? So, watch this is on. I suppose more of a personal question. Do you watch a lot of uh, war and TV or movies? Well, I, mo- I watch movies uh, discriminately. Well, many of uh, the uh, documentary movies, yeah, I, the, the shows you know on television. I, I watch many of them are not you know are not up to it and you know more popular in, in, in the. Well, well that, that that's what I wanted to draw on when you said many of them are not up to it. Yeah. Like the depictions of of battle, like modern and ancient, seem to be a bit fanciful. Many many times it is. Yes. Is there any is there anyone that stands out for you as doing it well? I guess the the, you know, the modern one. You know, there are you know, the uh, modern one. Many. Many are, modern are, movies are good. But specifically, modern movies or modern TV shows depicting modern combat, right? Uh, depends what you call it, you know, you're, you're also Napoleonic, if you call it modern, that's fine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did, did you see the, have you seen the new Napoleonic movie? Not yet. Is but it, is it out? No. I think it's just out, like, or maybe it's only out tomorrow. Yeah. But it's brand new. Are you excited for that one? We'll watch it. Not excited, <laughs> but we'll, we'll watch it, yeah. <laughs> I pray. You know, the old, the old movie, uh, Waterloo, uh, with, uh, Watch Tigers, Napoleon, was, was good in terms of, uh, history. And tactically, strategically sound? Yeah, basically, yes. Did you see uh, Game of Thrones? Sure. Liked it. You liked it? Yeah. Why do you like it? I liked it because, not because of the more fanciful aspect, but because I think it uh, portrayed rightly what most people do not get. That is how vicious uh, 
you know, politics and the Game of Thrones and the game between the throne and the aristocracy. And also in terms of its, you know, more infamous aspect, that is the uh, very, uh, the, the sexuality, the very, um, very uh, pronounced uh, scene of uh, sexual, uh, I think people miss this, how, how, how central all these struggles are in known history. Uh, you know, in, in the... You are not with me? Uh, are you following? I'm sort of how central what struggles are in known history? No, no, no. How, how struggles for power, mm. uh, very violent, uh, very intense. And then, uh, the, the, you know, uh, the um, struggle for sexual opportunity. With the sexual how, opportunities how, tied how, into it. How, how central this is in human motivation and, and in history. Right. By the way, the, um, I don't know if this, you know, by, but the, uh, you know, the commentary on the series, it mm. was uh, that, you know, that they, they thought that it reflected somehow the War of the Roses. You know? Sure, a little bit. The, the, yeah, not, not really. What, what, it, <laughs> what, it really, what it really reflected <laughs> is the situation in, uh, in, uh, in, in late Anglo-Saxon Britain. You know, a few centuries, you know, the role, the, the, the few centuries after the fall of Roman Empire, the Valerians of all the, still the barbarian invasions from the north, from the east, out, out, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, division of uh, Britain into several kingdoms that was, you know, unified only a few generations earlier, which, uh, correspond to Brittany of the uh, 9th and 10th centuries. This is the real, uh, you know, sitting life of, of the series. Mm. And people, you know, comment, uh, commentators uh, were, you know, uh, went astray because of this uh, more superficial uh, uh, the analogy with the, to, the, you know, to the War of the Roses. Just because, because Lannister, you know... You know sounds but, like but Lancaster and York, but, sounds like Star. Yeah, that, that's, that's, yeah. that's superficial. But, right. But I really like the way you put that about uh, how many of the other analogies are spot on for yeah. uh, late Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, yeah. This is what, like, like 10th century then, right? 9th, 10th century. 10th centuries, right. Yeah. I think the... Well, I mean, spoiler alert for those listening who haven't seen Game of Thrones... But I, I feel like the, the Red Wedding was specifically modeled after an event that took place in Scotland there, around that time. There have been so many of them. You know, there have been so... In, in uh, you know, among uh, prehistorical people, the so-called treachery feasts, mm. where, you know, they, they got this name. Treachery feasts. Yeah, when, when the sides uh, seem to have uh, made peace with each other, uh, and then, you know, they celebrated the peace with uh, the feast. And then each of the, uh, the, 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 the men on one party, you know, maneuver itself to stand close to another one uh, from the opposite uh, family or, or tribe. And they, when the signal was given, you know, would, would stab them. Uh, so this, this actually, uh, you know, got a specific name, Treacherous Feasts. So, so there were... <laughs> 
this was such a common phenomenon that you know you don't need to look for it, a specific analogy or a specific case. All right. Right. What, what did you think of the so the politics side of it? I also thought I remember thinking very much at the time, especially for the first four seasons, was so tight in a way that I'd never seen before or yeah. since. What do you think of the military side of things? Uh, I don't think it matters. I don't think that it. Fig- <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think that it figured so. So it, it's it's the Game of Thrones. Right. That was the, the you know that was the pivot of the series. Ah, the military side was you know not not uh, not that uh, significant. Not that uh, I didn't find it that uh, you know, uh, that compelling. No. Right. I mean, every so often they'd say, okay, now we're just going to stop what we're doing and spend the entire episode having a battle that we've been building up the whole season. Yeah, it's nice, but, you know, in terms of its historical significance, not much. What do you mean in terms of its historical significance? Historical authenticity in terms right. of uh, tactics and other things. Not, not, uh, not, not, you know. You not, had to suspend a bit of disbelief for those ones? Yeah, right. It's a fantasy after all. So, you know, I could, uh, I could live with did you, did you, Did you find, sure, but did you find yourself thinking... Um, after some of the key battles, oh, if I had to run it, I would have done this differently. I would have done no, that. No, I'm not into it. Oh, really? You just completely. All right, sure. Well, however you want to do it. Look, with with uh, if if all the factors are you know if all the features are invented, so you know I don't need to you know play with the invented features. No, I mean so many of them are not invented. I would have, I would have sent some more dragons if you ask. Me. You would have sent some more dragons. Just just joking. <laughs> Well, I, I was, I, I mean, you know, as people pointed out that in the final, final battle, um, the the defenders of Winterfell have trebuchets that they set up outside the city walls. Yeah. And like, that's a really obvious one. It's like, why are you putting your siege engines here? You know, they can shoot over the walls. You can put them inside the courtyard. But that just didn't bother you. You're like, yeah. okay, we'll let that go. Didn't bother oh, were there any, um, were there any favorite characters for you in that one? I... I don't, I don't think so. don't remember that much. Not a principal interest. Okay, well, I, I found it interesting when you would talk about the, the centrality of sexuality to yeah. uh, politics throughout history. It was really interesting to me how one of the key characters, uh, Lord Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, he, so much, like he has sort of two um, fundamental bases of power because he comes from like a very insignificant minor house and his sort of, his, I mean, aside from maybe his alliance, his, his, Romantic alliances with some of the bigger houses. He's he has this. Um, he's very good with with figures, so he get gets his way into as into being like essentially the accountant for the throne, and so he can pilfer off a lot of funds that way and control the remaining funds. But then the other thing he does is he has his his network of whorehouses. He runs the brothels, and yeah. by running the brothels, he's directly catering to so many powerful people, which gives him immense leverage. This is history. This is history. <laughs> people it, do not realize this. You know, it's not. You know, in earlier generations, they simply thought it wasn't proper. But now people uh, think that, obviously, they recognize that sexuality is a major force, but they don't, they, uh, they do not, you know, have a good account of uh, the, the actual role it played in, uh, in history, in human reality. Why history? Mm. Theoretically, they understand, but I don't think that they get it, you know, in full in terms of, you know, interpretation of things. It's not fully embedded, yeah. Like Something it. I find often when I'm considering, I mean, these bigger questions of, of um, sh- studies of politics, studies of international relations, study of war, is you, you run up very quickly against the sort of 
a sense of inevitability that like, you know, you can, you can try and act differently, but your incentive structures will lead you this way. You can remove this person from power and put someone else in, but he's going to have the same incentive structures and probably do much the same thing. Are we, are we largely just strapped into the roller coaster? Um, that's a huge subject. And you're, you're <laughs> a philosopher. We could, uh, we could talk about this. It's, uh, well, I know you have a not, class. I know you have a class yeah, in a couple class of minutes. And, uh, so, yeah, so we'll have to stop uh, very soon now. Uh, it's, it's both. It's both. Uh, you, you know, there are the, uh, the, are the big uh, cultural, uh, structural forces that, you know, that uh, we, that we have, uh, but, but there are, you know, the crossroads and the individuals that, you know, to say that they did not play a role or did not affect the actual course of history would be to, uh, to misunderstand how uh, it all goes. Hmm. Well, you say, you, as you say, rightly, it's a big question. I'm sure you it's can talk about question. it at length. Do you have like one example, one person, one scene in history where we were at a crossroads? So, uh, so you know, you know, Lenin uh, did uh, do something about uh, Russian history, and the same uh, is true of Mao, and you know, kind of the, uh, so would uh, would Russia, you know, would not be uh, the major power? Would the China not have become? Yeah, obviously they would, but you know, the all the other factors that uh, you know that. Uh, 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 the res- end result could have been very different, and to all uh, consequences, there would be uh, further consequences that uh, you know might change uh, things. Uh, it's actually, you know, it's Marx that uh, said it the best in his uh, in his one of his uh, works. Uh, he said, "It's people who shape history, but they only do it." Uh, based on the uh, conditions or the circumstances that they have in front of them. So both sides of the equation hold. I suppose that's as good a dichotomy as we can end with. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time today, Professor Gard. Most welcome. With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny 